You're listening to Atheistically Speaking. There are things to say. First, I think I think we could go back and forth all day, and, yeah. and for the better part of a few centuries, as, as I'm sure philosophers have, yeah. about what we're doing when we're trying to make these decisions. If we're ultimately looking at consequences, or 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 even the point I made before that I'm still worried has not really been addressed is yeah. when you're when you're trying to justify a right or a duty in, in deont- uh, deontology or virtue ethics or whatever. How are you justifying that? Like, what is the process? I'm not a philosopher. How does that work? How if do you? We, let's put it this way: If there's no limit on consequentialism, we say it's all about consequences produce the best outcome. This leads us to just keep piling it high, right? And this could lead us to um, that pile of hundreds of billions of people who have lives that are barely worth living. But when you add it all together, right? Uh, it's uh, it's a better world than our current world where everybody's as happy as possible. If you don't put a limit, again, on the consequences, you uh, may find yourself doing things like sacrificing innocence. And the worry is that this violates really basic moral intuitions that we have. So it's not that we ignore consequences. It's not that consequences don't matter, nor is it that uh, well-being doesn't matter. Right. It's the, right. I, I, I acknowledge so, oh. that. I'm trying to figure out yeah. what is the other component. Like how do you, do you get to a – Rule or a duty? How do you even? Right. How does how does that argument work in philosophy? So the the deontological approach here, the duty based, rule based, as Sam described it, would be that we uh, we propose principles that serve as sort of side constraints, right, or a check, if you will, on uh, uh, a consequentialist evaluation. If it's unchecked, right, then again, it seems to lead us to absurd logical consequences. Uh, more than that, absurd moral consequences or repugnant ones. So when I'm talking about piling people high, hundreds of billions whose lives are worth living, this has a name in the philosophical literature. It's the repugnant conclusion mm-hmm. of a uh, welfare-maximizing, well-being-maximizing approach to ethics, as Sam defends. So we have these uh, uh, we have these problems that result, and we, we, we hope to avoid them because it seems to violate uh, a basic understanding or intuition about what would be indeed uh, – the right world to live in, a morally good world. So the um, principles, for instance, um, would be one, um, a modern proposal here, 20th century, a guy named John Rawls, uh, was very concerned with justice, and he understood justice as fairness uh, within social and economic systems. And his, his own theory was concerned about welfare, right? Um, but unlike consequentialism, his own theory was concerned about the distribution of basic sort of social goods, uh, particularly within you know social and economic goods, that would lead to um, you know increases or decreases in welfare, and this concern about fairness here, we are we're looking at uh, what people deserve, right? What they're owed, and his worry was that um, we all at the start of our lives we pull a ticket in the genetic and social lottery, right? Some of us get really lucky. We're good-looking, we're smart, others not so much. The social lottery, some of us 
really lucky, right? We're born into uh, rich families, right? Or we're born into poor families, harsh circumstances. In the contrast here between what people can be born into uh, and the traits that can be born with, we can see this when we compare uh, first world living, right, developed nations, to uh, the undeveloped ones. Um, and it's more than just it's it's more than just that. You know, you well actually hold on, let me make sure it could just be just that. Yeah. So your social and genetic ticket in the lottery. Um, some of us have a better starting point than others. Um, and all of us in our lives, you could say, are kind of uh, trying to work toward uh, a good life. We're trying to, I don't know, raise our peak, as Sam would say. And it seems unfair that some of us start a bit higher on the landscape than others, again, to use uh, Sam's terminology. Or some of us, again, are born better looking, smarter. Some of us are born richer than others. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's worried that if we just kind of uh, leave that as it is, you know, let the social and economic Sorry, system... when you say he, are you talking about Rawls? Rawls, okay. yes, yeah, yeah. Rawls. So he's worried when you, when you just sort of leave things like that, the social and economic systems that result are going to be unjust. It's unfair for these individuals to end up with better lives than others, right, simply because they pulled a luckier ticket in the genetic and social lottery. Now, consequentialism... Um, it would seem to be indifferent to this because it doesn't matter if some people have better starting points, some people have uh, not so good starting points. When you take and you pile up all the well-being, if a social and economic arrangement that doesn't, say, offer special protections for people that are born poor to kind of give them uh, a head start right, to point to a specific uh, uh, sort of uh, social policy here that's been used. If we don't have those things uh, in place but nonetheless achieve – uh, a peak of welfare, right? Um, you would say that this is still not the best possible world. In fact, Rawls said, look, you know, when we put together just institutions, ones that are fair, ones that don't favor uh, individuals based solely on, well, what is luck? Again, the, the ticket that you pull in the genetic or social lottery. If we, if we allow that sort of world, even if it maximized well-being, we would worry that it's not a just world. We would worry that it's not a morally good world. So here we see that justice is a principle, particularly distributive Justice, the way that things are distributive, economic goods, right? People, again, some are born with so more is, money. So is this assuming, though, that we're still using the sum, we're using the, like the aggregate of well-being rather than – He actually I, he actually denies, uh, I believe, that well-being, that goodness, right? Because Sam says well-being, goodness, these are the exact same thing, all right? Um, Rawls, um, I believe, ultimately denied that well-being aggregates, that it's something that can be sort of lumped together uh, and measured in the end. He still thinks that well-being, right, is something that exists. Because yeah. I, I think the obvious argument is good. We need to protect, right? But to say that it sort of aggregates in this way, he denies. And I think it's precisely because his his theory is based on a respect for persons. Where we're not going to, in the final moral accounting, let people as vessels just sort of fade away, lumping all their welfare together. People are sort of a fundamental moral unit, a fundamental social unit that we have to respect. And when we do that, um, we are uh, prevented from, right? In some ways, we are limited. It could be. Maybe we maximize the good. Maybe we don't, right? But his theory says that's that's all right because this respect for persons and this Mm. concern for fairness is justice. These things are fundamental. And for consequentialism, we would say justice, fairness, all that stuff. This is Sam's own view. Justice, fairness, none of these things could matter except insofar as they take and increase our well-being. How could we take and value them just as abstract principles? And again, this is how we would value them. We would value them as checks or constraints 
on um, the sort of world that we build that would well, prevent us from. And he would from. point out that it just so happens there's none of these things we value that are bad for everybody. They all tend to be things that are good for everybody, which, which means that ultimately they might be grounded in well-being. Well, I, I think we could, say, we could say this. So there's a, there's a correlation between what we would mm-hmm. recognize if, if we were all sort of um, ideally kind of rational in our judgments. We might say that what we recognize as just institutions are also ones um, that uh, increase welfare. What we have is a correlation there between justice and well-being. But I don't think from that correlation, right, the coincidence of the connection between here, if we want to put it in stronger terms, between justice and well-being, I don't think that's enough for us to uh, take and conclude that justice ultimately can be reduced down to well-being, particularly when we run into problems where if well-being is more fundamental than justice – then concerns about fairness and stuff like that, concerns about persons, right, um, take and get lost if we can set them aside and maximize well-being. That's the thing. It's, his claim is that justice just collapses into the good experience that, that it creates for us. But the worry is when we do that, when justice simply falls into this massive, undifferentiated, impersonal pool of well-being, something morally important is lost, Right, the persons who would enjoy this well-being, and that we would hope to protect, and that uh, we would hope to give a fair shot, right, at uh, at a good life. Hmm. Well, it's interesting because I, I, as I was starting to say earlier, I mean, I do, I see, I think what Sam's doing, and and it's tempting um, to me as well, maybe because I, you know, been influenced by his reading a lot, but. It seems that he would still try to put all those things in terms of well-being and, and sure, maybe it's not an exact calculation. I mean, I, I'm sort of I, – I think you've, you've persuaded me that it's problematic um, and I, I get I, – I understand that a lot. But what, one thing I was going to say is that I've, I sort of look at these I'm, – I'm, it's not very compelling to me when I see these challenges to consequentialism and they're such abstract, um, barely – uh, possibly never going to factor into our everyday lives problems. I mean, I'm, there's probably ways we could think of ones that are closer to home. But to me, it, an analogy, I wonder what you think of this. It sort of feels like that, to, to me, consequentialism is is likely what's the the biggest factor in morality or what should be the biggest factor. But that doesn't mean that you can't find weird ways to isolate variables and pick it apart from time to time. Sort of like if there's a math problem or a theorem that, you know, something that's unsolved yet to be solved, you know, like, but does that mean all math is, is, is useless? No, it doesn't. It, it means that there's something that you can't solve, you know? And, and to me, the fact that I'm not able to possibly decide accurately whether we should, you know, kill a bunch of people and move our, Population down to a hundred thousand, something that's just never going to come up. I mean, it, to me, it's not entirely convincing because I feel like in my everyday life, I feel like I use my best guess of what the uh, the well being is going to be, of what's going to be best for everyone. That's kind of what I feel like I do. I don't know. Am I not doing that? Am I mistaken in that? Uh, well, first, let me ask you this: Have have I at least given you a coherent picture of what it might mean to value? Something other Something than consequences. Um, yeah, but it is interesting that uh, you have to say, well, we need to justify uh, – sorry, we need to value justice uh, and, and people as little moral entities 
um, over and above the the uh, the aggregate well being, and it's sort of like, and and, and I saw this in the um, thought experiment for the uh, abortion problem that we talked about. I uh, talked about with Piliucci. It's an interesting way of reasoning that I'm not really used to. Where, and I'm not saying that it means it's wrong or something, but it, it is it is interesting to me that you sort of say no, justice is a good. We ought to value it, or you you. It, or it lines up like uh, you know, like that thought experiment, for example, um, yeah. the 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 violinist. It'll 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 make arguments by saying, um, you know, if if such and such is true, then that would mean we have a duty to do this, which is ridiculous. You know that sort of thing. Like that's the way it it reasons, and it's interesting to me. And I and I guess that's how you would have to reason if you're saying that well being isn't what you're using. You know, if you're if you're sort of using some feeling of duty or like a moral intuition, I guess you would have to reason that way. And my problem with moral intuition is that I'm a firm uh, believer that evolution is responsible for, you know, uh, basically everything that we do, (laughs) like our feelings about things. So often our intuitions are mistaken in everyday life. There's countless examples of when our intuitions are terrible. So I don't put too much stock in when we can paint a problem that sort of twists our intuitions in on themselves and, and doesn't make us feel comfortable. Okay. So um, when it comes to the, uh, the fallibility of our intuitions, yeah, it's, it's, it's well known that our, that our minds are plagued by cognitive biases. Uh, we're certainly naturally quite awful at statistics, mm-hmm. right? Um, when it comes to morality, um, yeah, I think I think you're you're right to say that our evolutionary history has had some uh, influence on this. Uh, it may be the whole explanation of it. The the worry when you go down that path is that you are not going to be able to uh, affirm the existence of moral facts or moral truths. Let me right? let me clarify. I think that uh, evolution certainly uh, undeniably accounts for our moral intuitions. I don't mean yeah. to say that it accounts for all morality. I think we've done a lot of philosophy and realized that, you know, there are certain ways of acting that are going to be better for everyone. Whereas if we left it to adjust our intuitions, there are terrible things that you can see that primitive primates who ha- who probably still have a lot of the same intuitions but are not exactly governed by, you know, justice or ethics or that kind of thing. There's some terrible consequences. So, yeah, I don't mean to say it accounts for all of morality. I just mean I, I think that's where a lot of our intuitions come from. And to sort of flesh this reasoning out, uh, if our intuitions come from our evolutionary past and our evolutionary past is uh, situated in some uh, some Sahara, right, millennia right. ago where we were just trying to run from lions and, and, and make babies before we died at the age of 25, you might think, how could these things work? In the yeah, modern day, yeah. right, where our social system, our circumstances broadly are drastically different, right? Um, it certainly screws us, like I said, on statistics. Um, when it comes to uh, morality, insofar as it's, it's based in, you know, moral intuitions are based in our evolutionary past, right? We are, as you said earlier, right, social creatures and our, uh, our social capacities, right? The psychological capacities underlie them. Those things are likewise evolved. And I think to, um, continue with your line of reasoning here, we would say that, well, these particular intuitions that we have, um, insofar as they serve us well, um, they are ones that promoted our survival um, in um, 
uh, early in our evolutionary history are among our hominid ancestors coming together in groups, mm-hmm. right? Developing this, this uh, social competence, developing perhaps a sense of fairness that would preserve the overall fitness of the group and that would preserve individual genes, stuff like that. That's one way um, – that's one way to go. The worry is that it, it, make, it, it may take us down an anti-realist past uh, – or sorry, not past, but path – where we're denying that there are objective moral truths uh, as Sam tries to propose. Well, the, yeah, I was going to bring that up later. I'll, I'll let you keep going with that thought. Well, no, well, I mean we can, we can come back to it later. Um, I, I think what, what I want to say uh, right now here about intuitions and thought experiments, right, because Sam is skeptical about these things. Uh, he thinks that they they sort of remove us from important everyday practical realities where it very much appears that what matters and all that matters is uh, happiness or suffering. There's a couple of things going on here, right? We've got we've got the everyday, we've got the uh, we've got the practical, we've got the concrete, right? And it seems that there's there's nothing more concrete than the uh, uh, the suffering uh, or happiness that you feel directly. And that you cause in others, and hopefully you have you know a sensitivity to, unless you're like a psychopath or something. There's nothing more sort of real and concrete than that. And when we're we're entertaining these hypotheticals that remove us from that, uh, we start to worry that they don't really show us anything that matters, right? Maybe these are interesting sort of puzzles that we face, uh, but um, fundamentally, right? They don't undermine. I believe you were saying they don't undermine consequentialism, in particular, a focus on either increasing or or decreasing well-being. Well, here's the thing, right? In, in, in moral philosophy, there is uh, philosophy. Uh, generally, there's um, there's simply work that's going to be done, right? Primarily done, ultimately done at an abstract level. And when we're putting together uh, uh, a system of morality, right, which is supposed to tell us what is good, it's supposed to tell us what is right, and what's wrong, it matters, right? In the abstract, how these things work out, and whether it leads to absurd consequences, right, logical con- contradictions or repugnant consequences. So let's take the absurd consequences, right? In the same way that mathematicians trying to work out some particular theorem, if they arrived at a contradiction, they would, they would reject it, right? Likewise, when philosophers are reasoning about things, if they arrive at some absurd logical consequence, a contradiction, they would reject it. This is value for logical consistency, just as Sam would value it in science. When it comes to uh, reasoning about morality, um, this notion of logical absurdity seems to be tied up with this notion of sort of repugnance where it offends, it violates basic moral intuitions, right? Uh, there's a feeling that comes with this, and it might make you think, well, the whole reason that we've decided that uh, you know, the hospital thing is bad or the burn- baby burning thing is bad is because it makes us feel bad, right? It's because it causes suffering. That's what's concrete. That's what's right there with you. But you've got to remember what this is all about is trying to develop a system – that comes together as analyzable, stands or falls uh, to a significant extent at an abstract level. So these, these hypotheticals, right, this conceptual work, this stuff matters for determining whether our theory, that's the key term here, our theory is sound. Right? It might feel like in practice some of this theoretical stuff doesn't matter, that it falls away into the background, but it's there, and it needs to be logically consistent, and it needs to accord, as Sam is concerned, it needs to accord with fundamental moral intuitions. I think that, I, yeah, I agree. I I don't mean to say it, it, none of the concepts matter, none of the abstract level matters, but I think my criticism was that if the only major um, points where it fails are things that we're not likely to ever encounter um, or you know, very unlikely, 
I don't know that it that, that's a very convincing takedown when we're trying to come up with a system. Because I don't know that any prescriptive system of morality, maybe it won't work in a hundred percent of the cases. But is there one that does? And and what are we what are we trying to do? Are we trying to find the one that works in the highest percentage of cases? Are we trying to you know like it's it's not very compelling to me when I feel like most of our lives we're we're trying to evaluate the potential consequences and in, in most of our decisions we are. But then when it comes to a trolley or something, then then maybe it fails. It's I, I don't know. I don't so you're you're thinking, hey, look, man, it's good enough for for government work. Basically, <laughs> right? We yeah, kind of, and and it seems as though every system has these same problems. I mean, it seems like yeah. the uh, the as we discussed before, when there's a a, a duty, they, if you come up with a duty, like say my duty to hit everyone as hard as I can, well, that makes no sense. Well, why does it make no sense? Because it would be stupid. It would be, harm everyone. Like it, there are ways that it seems as though every system is at least maybe dependent in some way on on uh consequences of of action. So I don't know. I mean maybe maybe it's right that there that consequentialism consequentialism doesn't work 100% of the time that you might need something else to fill in the gaps. But does that would that concession I guess to bring it back to Sam Harris, would that undermine his entire book, do you think? Well, if if here's here's the Here's the thesis. Here's what consequentialism is by definition, right? Uh, moral right and wrong depends solely on the consequences. You want to know what the morally right thing to do is? Look at the consequences. Did you just win a, a slot machine or something? No, <laughs> no. My 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 dog. Uh, is, he, your dog won a slot machine. She, You're rich. Yeah, she, she's she's. <laughs> She's shaking it out. All right, okay. she's good. All right, sorry. So let me let me restart that without the sleigh bells. Sure. What was I saying? Um, uh, you said consequentialism is the, the only yes. thing that matters is consequences. So we're defining consequentialism, right? This is a concept. We're looking to test our concepts. It's going to involve some sort of, you know, some philosophical smash track work here. And the concept is, the definition is, moral right, moral wrong depends solely on the consequences. You can always, not in practice necessarily, right? But you can always, in theory, identify the right thing to do based solely on the consequences. You can always, in theory, uh, identify the wrong thing to do based on the consequences. Now, you might think, well, in theory, whatever. Well, let me let – me, and I'm not trying to diminish your position here. But, um, uh, but let me put it in, in terms that will be familiar from Sam's own book. Okay. In principle, right, his defense – of a scientific theory of morality is that science can uh, answer objectively questions of morality and value in principle, if not in practice. So what he's telling you is like in practice, science may fail to figure these sorts of things out, right? But in principle, it is ultimately able. And that's based on these fundamental concepts, these fundamental theoretical positions that he is defending. Now, when we're evaluating the theory, then, if it's something that is to be accepted in principle, even if it doesn't work out in practice, then it's going to stand or fall in principle. We're going to look at this definition of consequentialism. We're going to look at its claim. It says you want to know right, you want to know wrong, you look at the consequences, and that will always tell you in principle. Right? And the trouble is that, well, in principle, it seems uh, not to tell us that. It seems to tell us that certain things are wrong when we would, uh, we would judge them to be right. And that's a matter of our moral intuitions, and these are things that matter to Sam. 
his uh, theory at a fundamental level here is based on intuitions. He says in his response uh, to my essay that there are certain intuitions that strike us as non-negotiable, and this is where we begin. And when you've got, uh, you've got these competing theories, if I describe them, and, and Sam rejects that there's any competition. When you've got these competing theories, if I describe them, the competition arises – insofar as we recognize it, from a competition of intuitions, right? There will be intuitions that seem to support consequentialism. There will be intuitions that seem to go against it. Now, how do we negotiate among these sorts of things? Well, thought experiments are supposed to help, but not everybody is really on board with those. Um, so we have to, um, we have to, though, nonetheless, right, try to work through these things in an abstract principle-based sort of theoretical way. What do you think about the fact, I mean, he's a, you know, neuro... Uh, neuroscientist is, is that, that's his degree, right? Neuroscience is yeah. his PhD. Yeah, if right. we hypothetically were able to scientifically, scientifically account for where these intuitions are even coming from in the first place, what, what would that, would that affect the, the, the questions as you see it? Well, we can right now, um, take an account for, uh, a good portion of, of our behavior, um, based on genetics, Right. So if we're, if we're concerned here about – well, I mean you, you, you asked it in sort of an open-ended way, and I don't want to get off track here. When, when you're asking me what would it matter if we, if we took and determined that there is a neurobiological basis for our intuitions, and more than that, we can, we can not just point to parts of the brain right, that uh, underlie this, this uh, sort of moral reasoning, but we can take and trace the evolutionary history, history of it as well, well point to its to adaptive nature. Well, I can try to ask it in a, in, a, in a more pointed way. Like, okay. It, it, given what you were saying earlier about the, you know, the competition between our uh, certain consequentialism or whatever it is will appeal to certain intuitions or whatever, yeah. if ultimately we can investigate, discover why, and, and, and discover in what way, how, account for, you know, in our brains, why it's appealing to these intuitions. Uh, okay. Does that ground the entire thing in science or not? Here's, here's a way that science uh, has been used to uh, sort of negotiate among these competing theories, consequentialism, the ontology, the duty-based stuff uh, versus virtue ethics. Now, these are normative theories, Right. They're making evaluative judgments, judgments about good or bad, and um, there's a standard distinction. Uh, Sam rejects it, but a standard distinction between normative stuff and descriptive stuff, right? So these these normative theories, while they're telling us this is good, this is bad, this is right, is wrong, right or wrong, while there are normative theories, you can find that they have some descriptive commitments. So an example here, virtue ethics, right? Virtue ethics assumes that the basis of morality uh, are character traits, now, what are character traits? Character traits are global dispositions. They are a tendency to behave in certain ways in the same circumstances again and again. So if we say that someone, for instance, is courageous, this would be a virtue, this would be morally good. If we say someone is courageous, then we would expect in all those circumstances where courage is called for, right? Uh, standing up to, to bullies, you know, saving damsels in distress, um, that sort of thing, you'd expect them to be courageous. The trouble is, with social psychology, to set aside the, the neuroscience for a minute, social psychology suggests that, yeah, you know, people don't actually have these global dispositions. People don't have what we think of as character traits. Right? We describe people as courageous, but it turns out that really the strongest determinant here is not internal. Right? It's not goodness, good character traits that we carry around with us. The strongest uh, determinant in our behavior uh, is external. 
It's the circumstances that take hmm. and determine whether we're going to behave right or wrong. So here's the thing. If, if, if virtue ethics right, is committed to the existence of global dispositions like that, well, they don't exist. Right? This, would, uh, this would mean that uh, morality – as a virtue ethics ethicist would uh, conceive of it, as Aristotle would conceive of it, is actually not something we can realize. There may be some philosophers that are okay with that. Like, fine, I'm just speaking of an ideal sort of world. This is what we would be, and this is how we would uh, how we would live. Uh, if we can't realize it, then then fine. But if that if that descriptive commitment is part of it, right? If if you got to have these global disposition, you got to have character traits. Well, guess what? It looks like virtue ethics is out of the competition. Right now, we come to uh, uh, consequentialism. And the worry is that here, maybe we have certain psychological limitations that prevent us from doing the right thing, according to consequentialism. If, if, we, if we accept for the moment, right, and this is a contentious point, if we accept for the moment that, yeah, the right thing to do in the, in the train problem is pull the lever, people are cool with that, but also push the fat man, mm-hmm. we have a really hard time with that. Now, our difficulty with it, we try to explain as not a problem with consequentialism, but some sort of problem with the circumstances that would lead to, uh, you know, uh, the judgment that this well, is actually. Or more- I, I meant to say this earlier. It may be that we're just wrong to have a problem with it. Is that a possibility? Do we? T- I mean, okay. I, that's sort of how I view it. I think that if you're controlling every variable and you're accepting that pushing yeah. the fat man 100 percent takes care of it, I would, you know, I'm fine with it. And I so- think that it's possible that. It's a very difficult decision. It's something that's going to cause harm to you in some ways to to have to do that. But I, I think that our weakness tends to be that. And I, I wish I would have said this earlier. Try to try not to let me derail where you're going. But uh, our weakness may, may be a a weakness of our intuition in the same way that we're terrible with probability and that sort of thing. It may yeah. be a weakness in our moral intuition to focus more on the killing of this one person rather than the saving of the other people. I mean. It might be if you primed people by showing them pictures of the five people that you're saving, their kids, their families, you know, that that the amount of heartbreak that it'll cause for them to die because you didn't push this one person. I mean, maybe it would change our intuition. So it could be a problem with our intuition. Sorry. All right. So this is this is an interesting, interesting position. And I believe it's uh, basically the one that Sam takes as well. Oh, okay. Damn. He's, <laughs> I'm hey, hoping to not always just take his position, but I, apparently it's, it's fine. We, we we need we need more friction here to keep it interesting, yeah. right? So um, yes, yeah, so, so Sam would say, and he, he said this in his in his response to me. He's like, look, so suppose that we we discover that the moral landscape is, is strikes us as utterly morally objectionable. It's just sort of bad. And he's like, that's not a problem with the landscape, man. You know, that's a problem with our moral cognition. Hmm. All right. In the in the same way that if we discover that the universe behaves in ways that are just uh, incredibly difficult for us to understand, like some crazy quantum weirdness prevails. Right. Yeah. That's not a problem with the universe. Mm-hmm. That's our own cognitive limitations. Right. And we could say that there are likewise cognitive and affective, emotional, uh, emotional, and even sort of motivational uh, problems that um, that get in the way. So. Um, what I said with virtue ethics is when we discover that psychologically we're not properly composed for that theory, we reject the theory. What you're suggesting now is if we find that we're not psychologically composed for consequentialism, we don't reject consequentialism, right? particularly if we understand uh, morality, objective morality in the way that Sam proposes. It's just a moral landscape. These are, these are facts of the universe just like there are facts about physics. Then, yeah, that's, that's us. 
we uh, need to, as you were just describing, sort of put in place some props, right, that help us overcome our cognitive limitations. We prime people uh, to push the fat man so that we do the right thing despite our cognitive limitations in the same way that we would carefully present, uh, say, statistical or scientific evidence in a way that would uh, that would allow us to best appreciate it rather than let like our emotions and biases and stuff get in the way. That's That, I believe, is the proposal that you have. Hmm. Am I right? Uh, yeah, let me say that I, I think the difference, and that's a very interesting uh, comparison, I think it's a good point. So the difference to me, to my mind, would be that with virtue ethics, it sounds like the problem is not just that our, you know, we're having an intuition that goes against it, so therefore we need to change our intuitions because virtue eth- ethics has explained that, you know, the the right decision is this this or that. It's that the given that scientific data, virtue ethics seems to not even describe us correctly. It seems to not. It, it, it seems to me that that's a more fundamental problem with virtue ethics. Whereas with with uh, what you brought up with Sam Harris. Uh, and what I said, if our if our intuitions may be wrong in a particular situation, we need to work on our intuitions because it's not a fundamental problem with with it. So maybe that didn't answer it, but that is an interesting uh, problem. And I want to think about it more. But that would be my my first guess at an answer. Right, right. I think I think that's an interesting proposal. What we uh, what we might start to worry about here. Do you uh, have you ever read um, William Salatin or Mm-mm. Salatin? He's he's a columnist over at Slate. And he writes on uh, bioethics and stuff like that. Hmm. And years ago, this was this was like 2007, I think. He wrote a piece talking about um, uh, psychological research on um, utilitarian reasoning. There's a, a scientist slash philosopher named Joshua Green who's been working on this. Um, Harris uh, Sam's talks about his work in his book. And um, what he was what he was finding is that. Um, and Joshua Green, this particular philosopher scientist, he, he endorses a uh, consequentialist utilitarian view. Uh, but there are some differences with Sam's. And ultimately, uh, Joshua Green is not a moral realist. He does not think that there is an objective morality in oh, the way that Sam does. But he was talking about how, yeah, it, it seems that um, normal human brains, the typical human brain, isn't always so comfortable with this uh, consequentialist reason reasoning. But there are individuals, and Sam talks about this in his book as well, there are individuals who exhibit certain uh, brain abnormalities, in particular uh, some problems in the frontal lobe, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, I believe. Sam would be the man on this stuff, and he's got some talk about it in this book. Um, these are individuals who actually are far more comfortable with the consequentialist judgment. Like pushing the fat guy? Yeah, not a problem. And the difference here, it seems uh, – to just call it intuition might not capture uh, uh, the meat of it. The difference seems to be like an emotional, motivational hmm. response. And to get our minds in line with moral rightness from a consequentialist perspective would seem to be here uh, a retooling of our emotional and motivational uh, uh, sort of circuitry. Right. With, with virtue ethics, we would have to take and retune our brains in such a way that we had fixed sort of traits that would always respond in the right way to the, to the situation. Uh, I don't know how that would be pulled off exactly. Yeah. But when it comes to consequentialism, we are here starting to identify the, uh, the sort of moral neural machinery that um, uh, when, it's, when it's working as normal, it can interfere with consequentialism. When it's actually not working as normal, it doesn't. Here's the thing, though. These people with, with the ventromedial prefrontal cortex problems, we're talking about individuals uh, who uh, may suffer from antisocial personality disorder, people who are psychopaths, right? And, and I'm, 
I want to be careful here. I don't want to seem like I'm I'm maligning consequentialism as psychopathic, right? Um, in the way that Sam would say that you know Christians worship a uh, psychopathic sky god. Um, I I want to say here that there's some worry about the people that we would be if we were consequentialists. Now we might determine how neuroscience can change our brains to make us right reliable consequentialist reasoners who take and do the right thing according to consequentialism. But becoming those sorts of people, this might violate intuitions. We can say, well, we'll wipe those out too, right? But if you, if you had a choice, you talked about have a choice, have a vote, right? We said the 7 billion people versus the 100,000. If you had a choice right, between who you would become, staying who you are now with your motivational and emotional sort of dispositions uh, or having all those things altered so you could be a perfectly sort of reliable, consequentialist, moral uh, decision maker, um, you might say, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I want to become that. Though if you did – Right, you would be utterly transformed. Yeah. The preference is that the previous you wouldn't even matter any longer. And if it turns out that consequentialism has captured the moral truth, then you will have become the person that you need to be to be morally good. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, and and it does make intuitive sense that um, you know some of these the the most difficult utilitarian calculations. It does make sense that they might require sort of a, a detachment from from emotion a lot of times. So I, you know, I, it, it, it makes sense to me that it, it may be people who are, have less emotion or less, less compassion might be able to make those decisions better. But, well, uh, recall, recall that it? you had a proposal a moment ago where instead of trying to silence the emotions, cut ourselves off from them, you suggested that maybe we can take and use them, uh, in such a way that we could, uh, sort of direct them in the right way. Like if you're with a fat guy and somebody shows yeah. up and says, look, let me show you pictures. Let me show you the kids, right, for the five people you're going to save. Come on, come on. Are you ready to push the fat guy? Are you ready to do it? It's like, all right. And that sort of overcomes, right? You use a competition of emotions where you hope that the, the emotions that favor the consequentialist uh, decision uh, will win out. Though there's some practical problems with that, we might imagine. But Of course, yeah. Uh, still. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's going to be practical. No matter what moral system you're picking, there, there's no guarantee that everyone's going to execute it perfectly all the time. But we could say that if we have a mind to improving our ability to make these decisions, we yeah. might use things like, I don't know, you know, teaching people the situations that are problematic and why, you know, how it might be a good idea to consider it. Yeah, that's interesting. I, and actually, one thing I thought of, actually, way back with this essay contest, I, I, I was never really going to do it, but I was trying to think of problems, like, hmm, how would I think of a problem to attack his his book with? And it seems like, Almost everything falls apart once you talk about re-engineering our species. You know, it, it's some of the thoughts are kind of scary. I mean, if we, if we, you know, should we make it such that none of us ever value anything? You know, like in some ways, like you could almost turn off all the consequences and turn off all the, a bunch of things. And and how would you evaluate that? Like, what criteria would you use to decide if we ought to eliminate a certain gene that? you know, can produce certain effects. I, I think that is a time where it, it may become so impossible and, and any uncertainty. Uh, for example, when you mentioned, you know, should we change people so that they're able to make these utilitarian decisions better? Well, what are all the consequences of that? <laughs> What's a, will we be less attached to, you know, our kids? W could that have some bad consequences? You know. Well, yeah, so... 
Sam kind of let me just with the quickly idea. quickly finish sorry, the sorry. thought. Um, I, oh, I'm I would sorry. say I didn't mean to you. no, no, that's a, quite okay. I just I, I may not have had something ready, but I, <laughs> but I actually <laughs> you, this you time paused, I jumped. No, 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 you're totally you're totally fine with that. But I just wanted to finish by saying uh, the point I was going to make is there's there could be so much uncertainty and so much at stake with these reengineering these hypothetical reengineering of our species and our genome and that kind of thing that the uncertainty of consequences outweighs uh, the the potential benefit. So uh, it almost seems like we ought to just, unless we're incredibly certain uh, and it's, and it's, and the, and the, the potential downfall, you know, of of what it is, is, is minimal that we ought not to, uh, to mess with, with our genome. Okay, go ahead. All right. Caution certainly is warranted. Right. Right. But a principle of caution need not be so strong that, that, that it become a principle of prohibition. Right, where right, we never yeah. take and and do any sort of positive genetic engineering, as it would be called, uh, changing ourselves in ways that we imagine would enhance us. We already uh, are inclined towards negative engineering, where we've got sort of uncontroversial cases of things that are sort of wrong with our genes, and we want to fix it. So, mm-hmm. if we could take and um, fix certain genetic uh, atypicalities in the womb, right, maybe Huntington's or something like that, we would. I was uh, actually just thinking of that one, yeah. Right, um, but you know, there's 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 stuff. There's some there's some science we can put to work that's potentially dangerous for us, uh, but we're tempted to do it uh, because of the benefits. So nuclear power would be an example of this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen some awful, awful things that have happened uh, with nuclear power, but um, that's just – people would say, you know, uh, cause for caution. Or uh, there are individuals that are worried about nanotechnology and like a, a – what is the term for it? Like a gray goo, like little tiny nanobots that just sort of overwhelm the planet and we're consumed by them, right? There are, there are um, real threats. Well, I don't know, hypothetical threats uh, that accompany that – accompany There you go with this. your paranoia again. All right. <laughs> Crackpot yes. Ryan Bourne, our guest announcer. Hey, maybe I just read this stuff for entertainment. Yeah. That's why I share it with you. You don't, you don't know that I'm sincere about these things. But uh, in any case, there are individuals who are concerned about nuclear power. There are individuals who are concerned about yeah, nanotechnology, right? And there are risks with these sorts of mm-hmm. things. And there are risks that could come along with genetic engineering given the complexity, right? Of uh, of uh, genetic processes, not to mention the epigenetic processes that are associated with them, uh, that uh, give rise to um, uh, you know uh, traits in our behaviors and stuff like that. Um, so you could say, yeah, look, we're we're worried that if we get this wrong, it's going to be horrible, 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 right? We think about the potential consequences and we make that calculation, right? Sam talks about both actual and potential and. Uh, and yeah, if, if we're going to have a forward looking morality, we can't just rely on actual consequences because then we'd only be looking back with our moral judgments. Right. Um, well with the, uh, uh, with the changing of, uh, changing of the brains here, right. We could, we could worry about some risk, but let's say that, you know, uh, our understanding of the brain has, has developed, um, uh, to the extent that, uh, Sam and many neuroscientists imagine, right. We've got a, a deep sort of functional understanding of the brain, including moral cognition. Uh, we found uh, where these things lie uh, within the brain uh, as we're starting to do now with the ventromedial prefrontal cortex and stuff like that, uh, where we can kind of figure out how to, how to remap the circuitry, rewire it to make our brains better as far as consequentialist reasoning goes. Um, I, I think that the consequentialist judgment would be, yeah, that, uh, that we go uh, in that direction. But all of this, of course, is setting aside uh, the risk and the uncertainty, right? Um, yeah. 
I, I think that I may need to, and, and sorry if you if you had another point you want to make, go ahead. But um, man, I I may need to to start winding down because I have one last uh, may or may not be a big question. I don't know, and I want to make sure I have time for it. Um, but uh, yeah, I. <laughs> well, you know, we're, like, we're, we're, what's that? We've been we've been a lot of places. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, you, you you figure questions, answers, target it, man. It's it's nice and tight, but uh, uh, yeah. I mean, we we might have gone a little afield here, but I think this I think this has all been great. And if you oh yeah, no, and and the have, thing is, I I uh, I would love to have you back because I I feel like we didn't we definitely didn't cover as much as I thought we might, but but that's what happens. I mean, you go you go places, and I I would rather see those things through and maybe cover more stuff later than uh, than than interrupt what might be a good discussion. Yeah. And so that we might cram everything in. So and this is this is stuff that's not, you know, uh, simply Sam Harris talk. Oh, no. Yeah, not at all. These are big issues here that uh, that we can we can take and sort of. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I recognize that, you know, your expertise and I really feel like uh, we were able to get a lot out of it. I mean, I, I, I instantly, <laughs> you know, I, I when you when you mention you know you, you teach philosophy and your credentials and all that it it, it would have been much different discussion if you just happened to be i don't know a hobbyist who wrote an essay that happened to be picked you know i might i might have focused more on just the specific sam harris issues but uh i i definitely was taking advantage of your time so that i might learn a little more about philosophy and well yeah this is that that's the excitement of it man the freedom to sort of range here intellectually Absolutely. So yeah, yeah, this is great. So, so let me ask you, and and definitely leaving open. I I hope you'll I hope you'll come back um sometime, and we can we can. I, I'm sure there'll be a lot of comments too about stuff that I you know I forgot to bring up or you did. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I hope you'll sure. come back and we can address more of your responses to him because there's a lot of stuff people, in there. People were probably like, I need a I need a guy to take an absolute hard line against Sam Harris. <laughs> I need a clear opponent. I am so <laughs> glad. I I really have a ton of respect for your stance. I I because I think you know there's problems. You pointed them out, but I like that you don't you don't go overboard and dismissing the entire everything he's ever written because he's not doesn't seem to be paying enough respect to philosophy. You know, it's like, I, I really respect that it does. You don't, your criticism feels very, um, genuine and, 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 uh, rigorous rather than any sort of emotional motivation, which I, I think is to be commended. And I, I think it's great. Look, the man is a, is a, uh, a popular public vehicle for ideas. Right. And ideas that he puts forward are, are, are not ones that are unique to him. Right? Some parts of his basic proposal are ones that are standardly sort of debated and explored in philosophy. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, ideas, man. I'm all about them. Now, where I see problematic arguments, where I see that a bad case is being made or a better case could be made, that's what I'm about. Yeah. Right? I'm, not, I'm not just going to dump on a guy because of his ideas because I'm glad to have someone out there making these ideas, though I'm going to – I'm going to – you know, I'm going to – I'm going to raise a stink if I think the case isn't being made well. Right. I, I think you did a great job. So let me ask you the last question I wanted to ask you, um, just just because I'm curious, uh, since you, you know, given your expertise in philosophy, I think that the main thing, I think it got a little derailed, and but justifiably so, because he made a lot of claims in his book that I think you, you dealt with well and that deserve some criticism. But I think the main thing he wanted to say is to establish that there can be objective moral values and and they don't come from religion. And I'm curious if you agree with that part of this thesis, maybe for different reasons or 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 whatever. So that morality in some way must depend on objective facts about us 
about humans that therefore applies to all humans, no matter what culture they might be in. So let me, and, and I have a quote I, I found after I wrote this question, actually. Um, the whole point, this is his quote in one of his responses, the whole point of the moral landscape was to argue for the existence of moral truths and to insist that they are every bit as real as the truths of physics. If readers want to concede that point without calling the acquisition of such truths a science, that's a semantic choice that has no bearing on my argument. So that's uh, that sort of thing. I mean, do you, do you ultimately agree with that conclusion, perhaps for different reasons or no? Do I agree with the conclusion that um, we might arrive at moral truths, objective truths, uh, in the same way that we arrive at scientific truths, objective truths? Well, maybe not uh, in the same way, but do you believe we can arrive at them via whatever means? And, and, and we can arrive at them and, and insist on them in the world rather than, right. rather than just some cultural relativism. Uh, I – to use a term that some might find dissatisfying, particularly if they want a strong sort of opponent, I lean towards moral realism, as it's called. Mm, okay. I lean toward. I am sympathetic toward. If I if I wanted to really lay it out, I might say I am hopeful that <laughs> uh, that there are objective moral truths. And uh, what I would want to emphasize is that uh, philosophers right, have uh, been proposing that and uh, seeking to defend that very claim for centuries, right? If yeah, you're looking and, and Pilly Ishi mentioned that too. If you're looking for a secular morality, right, we were working on that before science, right, was really established, before science was, was on the scene the way it is now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a secular morality, a secular objective morality, something that uh, uh, takes us away from the, the excesses of uh, – Religion-based morality takes us away from the from the excesses of, of a cultural relativism where there are no moral truths. Uh, yeah, I, I I I am hopeful for sympathetic toward. I think there's perhaps some good reasons to take and and endorse an objective uh, uh, moral theory. I have a problem though with the way that Sam has attempted to defend it, and when he says in that quote that it's a mere sort of semantic choice. Right, whether we would call the acquisition of moral truths science, supposing his theory is correct, uh, it's quite the opposite. The acquisition of moral truths, the discovery of moral truths, on par with you know the discovery of um, uh, physical truths mm-hmm. in science. Right, uh, we would, if if his theory is correct, discovering moral truth. Right, discovering uh, whether, uh, for instance. Um, uh, a well-funded public ed- education system is better than uh, a private system with an emphasis on vouchers, right? Determining what's the morally right, correct thing to do in that case, it, you actually would call that science if Sam was correct, mm-hmm. right? If, if, if foundationally, right, all that can be morally good is uh, well-being, and well-being, what's more, is something that uh, we can uh, investigate, Right, scientifically, we can determine the causes of it, and we can figure out when it rises, when it falls. If that's right, then the acquisition of moral truths is indeed a science. But to get there, to get to a point where Sam, as Sam proposes, where we are discovering moral truth, just like we discover right chemical truths or physical truths, to get there, we got to get the philosophy done. Right, and I think that there are still some problems at that fundamental level, problems with consequentialism. 
hmm. problems uh, with um, his meta-ethical position. So consequentialism would be his normative ethics, good, bad, right, and wrong. The meta-ethical position would be the very nature of uh, uh, moral truth. And his view is that in, um, when we're talking about what's good, when we're talking about what's bad, we can define those terms. This is a definitional question again. Right? We can define those terms uh, using descriptions of the natural world where the relevant descriptions would be uh, peaks and valleys of conscious experience. Right? So that's a fundamental philosophical issue, and I still think that Sam might be on shaky ground with consequentialism as well as with this uh, uh, meta-ethical question of how we define bad and good. He again thinks that we can define it in terms of descriptions of the natural world. And um, that's where people start talking about the fact-value distinction that Sam rejects. Um, and I think, yeah, I think, I think uh, there's still some work to do in that okay. regard. All right. Well, that, that's, a, that's a philosophical answer, but it's a good one. I, I'm glad. I, it's interesting. So you're not postmodernist or, or anything like that. I think that, that uh, it, I, I would agree. And I, I, that's, that's what I view as the biggest um, goal of the book uh, is, is to establish some objective morality. Maybe he didn't go about that the right way. It sounds like he... He maybe had some more work to do before he got to his first assumption. Uh, very interesting. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Again, I, I, I really uh, would love to have you back. Um, I, I'll keep an eye on your blog. and I, <laughs> I might, might have to just write a blog post too, not that anyone would read it, but uh, of questions and, and, and of different points that you made or that he made because I, I had a lot written down that we didn't talk about. <laughs> but yeah, that's, yeah. that's usually how it goes. <laughs> as, but, long, as long as the conversation was good. And I, and I, oh, I think, I think it was. It was. Right. So, awesome. So I thank you again for coming on, and I'll talk to you again soon. All right, great. Thank you so much. All right. That is the end of that interview, and that was great. I want to thank Ryan again. Uh, so good to talk to him. I learned a ton. There's a lot of information there, and I feel better equipped to think about these things. Um, yeah, we're we're sort of out of time. I have a lot of thoughts. I'm not sure what to do. I th- maybe next week I'll I'll do some more. It's been a while since I've done some commentary, um, and I might I might kind of put my my own uh, you know analysis or spin on things and and see what you think about that. Also, I, it's been a long time since I've gotten to go over comments. So I want to do that as well. Um, okay. I guess I'm just at that point where I got to thank my uh, patrons um, because I got to do that every week. First off, we have two new ones, Duff and John. Uh, thank you very much for your contributions. Um, both were, uh, were sending me messages today too. It's, it's good to talk to you guys. And th- a lot of people responded to my call for uh, sort of opinions on the show. Um, <laughs> actually with that, Bonus content. I I hit the wrong damn button and released it on the normal feed. I, th- I about 150 of you or so listened to that before I t- I took it off right away. I don't know how how that works. Somehow a lot of people still listened. Um, but uh, there you go. There was a little free sample for you of what you're missing on the bonus content. <laughs> um, and uh, so yeah. So now I got to thank my regular patrons. My uh, the best Havard. Uh, Jonathan Moyer, John P., thank you so much. Bangs Naughty Bits, 
1369. We got Dale, Cincy Farmer, Jeremy Sharp, Jim, and Matt Garrett. Thank you guys so, so, so much. I really appreciate it. Um, and I try to tell you so as often as I can because it's it's the best. Uh, what you guys are doing and your support is just, it's unreal. So go to patreon.com slash atheist if you want to get in on that bonus content and help me out, you know, show me that you appreciate the show and uh, either whatever your motivations, I don't care what it is. As long as you're donating, <laughs> you get access to the bonus content and you have my appreciation. Oh, about that. I'd made an announcement about Thomas and the Bible. Well, we hit the goal. It did not take long. Um, it was weird. It was a little slow for a while, but I, maybe it took a while for people to hear it. And uh, we hit the goal. So that podcast lives. And I can announce the official release day is going to be Wednesdays. So as I pledge to you, there will be a new Thomas and the Bible every single Wednesday now. And uh, it will be better, better than ever because... Um, uh, you really showed me that it, it's of value to you. I, I wasn't sure. I didn't know, you know, if people were really caring about it still. The Bible's not done me any favors. It's a terrible book. Um, that said, there were some people who set some limits. Um, I don't want to be really, you know, I'm not going to be a jerk about it. Uh, people who set limits and people who said that they would not be able to contribute at that level for long. So I'd appreciate it. All I'm saying is if you uh, just are hearing about this now and you still want to give, there's still plenty of reason to sign on to patreon.com slash team the B just letting you guys know that, but uh, sorry for all the Patreon talk, um, but it's good. It's good to go. So uh, that's that. I think that's all my announcements for this week. And thank you for another great week of episodes. Thank Ryan and uh, lots to think about. Let me know your thoughts on the site on the Facebook as usual. All right. Have a good weekend, everybody. See you on Monday.